So you have a sense that you need to release something to God this morning, I invite you to do that. If you need to sit down, you can do that. isn't planned. So Brian was giving me the side eye, like I should come up and say something, and he wasn't. He was looking at Sumitra <laughs> over there, which is the proper place to look, but this whole time, and so I went over to him and I said, hey, are you giving me the eye? Should I say something? And uh, because we're just submitted to authority here, if he wants me to say something, I'll find something. He said, no, I'm not. And I said, but there's something that's really stirring in my heart. And we have morning prayer before the service starts at 9 o'clock. Quick plug, anybody who wants to come. And everything that's happening in the service is what we prayed about in this, that would happen in the service before the service began. And he just said it very different. In, he didn't say it very different. He used different illustrations in the morning service, but... But it was the same message. And so sometimes, if you're like me, I need to hear things from different angles before I finally get it. Like, we're just like that. So what he was saying this morning, as we prayed this morning as a group of people, is that there is a rest that is available for the people of God. And it always remains available. It actually says that in Hebrews. There remains a rest for the people of God, and there's a couple of reasons why we don't enter in. One is fear, and one is patience. We're just not patient enough, uh, which we didn't talk about. That's a sideline. But in the creation, on the seventh day, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but there's no evening and morning. Day one, there's evening and morning. Day two, there's evening and morning. Day three, there's evening and morning. But day seven, no evening and morning because the day of rest remains forever. And we always have an opportunity to enter in. And so I really felt this morning, like I felt really ministered to in worship, but then at the same time I felt, I wonder if there's people who just haven't had rest for a very long time. And so I was just praying for you the whole time that you would find rest somehow in this. But I want to be a little bit bolder and say that there's some people in the congregation right now that their struggle should end today. That in his presence, that you've had enough patience and now's the day that you don't have to have patience anymore. That you just say, I am free because the promises say I am. So how do I receive promise? By faith. I just believe. So I would like to pray. Uh, I would like to pray with Brian standing beside me so I feel less insecure. 
uh, it looks different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it looks better. And then when, you know, if Brian wants to pray too. So, Father, we receive your promises. We believe for us, your promises are yes, yes. and amen. And so for those of us who need your rest today, it has just been too hard, too long. We just release your mercy in Jesus' name. As was said by the man laying in the ditch, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. So we just release in Jesus' name the mercy of God over all that are here and that are over all that are listening. We know that we do not deserve your love. There's nothing we can do to earn it. So we ask with boldness as we come before your throne of grace, we throw yourself at your seat of mercy. Give us the mercy we don't deserve. Touch those bodies that need healing today. Touch those minds, Father, that need to have the peace that we've spoken about. So we speak peace. So let your favor come on a people right now. And I receive it. I believe it. children are dismissed. Colossians chapter 1 verses 1 to 14. This is the opening of Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank you, thank God, the Father, our Lord Christ uh, Jesus, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told you, told us, of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives 
so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Seven Oaks, and it's my privilege to open up God's Word this morning. Um, <clears throat> uh, some, many of you will know that I came to uh, join the staff at Seven Oaks about five and a half years ago, and prior to that, um, uh, I was for a long time um, with a Baptist church. And when I came to the Christian and Missionary Alliance, I said, I like the Christian and Missionary Alliance because uh, theologically and, and ecclesiologically, uh, the Alliance have found a sweet spot about halfway between the Baptists and the Pentecostals. And, uh, and uh, it, it's kind of fairly, you got a chance to see that this morning. I'm a Baptist, so I wrote this sermon about a month ago. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, Brad is, uh, is, I think it's fair to say, pretty charismatic, which is why you've got some guy with no shoes just coming up in the middle of the service because the Holy Spirit has spoken to him. Um, uh, although there's, I, I had the decision whether to let him come up, and I, and I did because my overwhelming experience is, is that when uh, Brad says, the Holy Spirit's talking to me, it's because the Holy Spirit's talking to him. Uh, the other unusual thing that's happened this morning is that I brought water up to the um, dais with me. I don't usually do that, but I was watching that um, video on the Psalms, and when it came to that brook with the cold water in it, it just made me really thirsty. So, um, Many of you, perhaps most of you will know that this is uh, the 75th anniversary this year. 2023 is the 75th anniversary of Seven Oaks Alliance Church. Um, there are probably about somewhere between 500 and 600 people uh, who make up our church community who uh, would, if you ask them, tell you Seven Oaks is my, my home church. Um, and w across the course of a year, we have an average of about 300 people who gather in this room to worship together. But Seven Oaks is part of a much older and much bigger church than that. Um, the, the Church of Christ, the church which is the body of Christ, uh, is coming up on 2,000 years old. Um, different estimates from different organizations uh, vary somewhat, but one can generally say uh, with confidence that there are currently in the world today uh, something in excess of 2 billion uh, Christians, 2 billion people um, who identify themselves as followers of Jesus Christ. And that means that there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of local churches all over the world. And uh, 
those churches belong to literally thousands, if not in perhaps tens of thousands, of different uh, church denominations, different um, ways of organizing churches into, into sort of uh, groups. And it is uh, not surprising that among those billions of Christians and hundreds of thousands of churches and thousands of denominations, there's quite a bit of uh, disagreement over uh, what it means to be the church, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. There's disagreement over matters of, of a style of worship or how we should function together as the church. There are disagreements over specifically what it is that we should believe. There's even some disagreements over, over the specific nature of who Christ is. And uh, I've been for a long time wanting to show this uh, graphic to you during a sermon, and this sermon seemed like the perfect time to do that. Do I have a graphic? Excellent. Ah, there it is. I'll give you a second to read it. I was saying to the rest of the team, it's a little subversive, um, but uh, it, it certainly illustrates the point that, that there can be a lot of disagreements in the, in the overall church over what's right and what's wrong in terms of how are we supposed to, to, to believe and live and act out our faith in Christ, both as individuals and, and as, as groups. And this is something that we struggle with, right? The question that we have to face as individual Christians, as members of Seven Oaks Alliance, is how do we know we're getting it right? How do we know we're getting this right? We're trying to be followers of uh, Jesus, a man who, who uh, walked the earth 2,000 years ago and and uh, we have the Bible as, as, a, as a guidebook, but it's a very old book that was written by a number of different people a very, very long time ago. How is it that we know that we know the mind of Christ, that we're actually doing this together and individually the way that Christ intends for us to do? Now, I've talked to some people who said, yeah, nowadays that's really complicated, you know, as, as per the, the graphic that I just showed you. But... Um, in the early church, like in the first century, it was much easier, you know, because it hadn't been such a long period of time and there wasn't so much diversity. And they had the apostles, you know, who could, who, you know, had walked with Jesus and they could tell them. Um, so, so probably it was more straightforward and consistent then. But of course, it wasn't. If you read the New Testament, if you read Paul's letters to various churches, if you read um, the book of Revelation... Um, which starts with John dictating from uh, the Holy Spirit uh, letters that Christ wants to send specifically to specific churches that are existing in that time. You read through there and you see that 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years after, after Christ, um, the ch local churches were actually spectacularly good at having already gotten this wrong, uh, having... Uh, the wrong idea of who Christ is and what it means to follow him and what they're supposed to do. And one such letter is a letter that we're going to be looking at over the next um, eight weeks or eight or nine weeks or so, which is Paul's letter uh, to the Colossians. 
to the church at Colossae. Sumitra um, read uh, to us this morning the opening from Paul's uh, letter to the Colossians. And the passage that you saw this morning is a pretty standard Pauline opening. It, to those of you who are familiar with Paul's various letters in the New Testament, it looks a, it looks a lot like his openings of letters. Paul is an encourager. He always starts with this wonderfully encouraging language um, to the people that he's writing to. And he <clears throat> always gives thanks. You hardly ever read one of Paul's letters that he doesn't say to the person that he's writing to, in my prayers, I give thanks for you at the church at Colossae. Or Colossae. I, I give thanks for you, the church in Corinth. I give thanks for you, the church in Rome. He always gives thanks and sincere thanks. In the passage that Symmetra just read, you know, Paul says, um, I give thanks for the fruitfulness of your church. He acknowledges that their church has been bearing fruit. That since he sent Epaphras, because um, this is kind of the history of the situation, when he was in Ephesus, he sent Epaphras, one of his associates, to go to Colossae, uh, and start this um, new church there, which had happened, and many people had come uh, to know Christ. Many had become disciples. Many had become followers of Jesus Christ. And there was fruit being born there, and Paul acknowledges it in his letter. And the, the third thing that he does, he encourages, he gives thanks for what people are doing, is that he always says, I'm praying for you. I'm not just praying and giving thanks um, about you, but I'm, I'm praying for you. And in this passage, he specifically says, I am praying that you as a church will grow in knowledge and understanding and wisdom. Um, the wording specifically is that he says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. He prays for them to have knowledge and understanding and wisdom. And the reason he wants them to have those things, he says, is so that they can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Now, when we read these letters, and particularly if you're reading uh, uh, one of those long sort of, this just looks like the setup to the letter passages that Paul's so famous for, and particularly in the middle of this sentence, I, I'm famous for writing run-on sentences, um, but this sentence of Paul's, uh, you know, I, is impressive for being a run-on sentence. Um, but in the middle of it is this little phrase, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. It's a small phrase and it's easy to gloss over it, but my heavens, it's enormous. His prayer for them is, is that they will be able to live a life worthy of the Lord. That's a tall order. That's a, that's a pretty um, high bar to meet, right? And we think, 
or I say we, the Bible scholars, who I've received my education from, um, are pretty convinced that the reason Paul wrote this letter uh, to the church in Colossae is because he'd gotten word that they weren't. They, as a church, were not living a life worthy of the Lord. The, the scholars who write <clears throat> on this letter are, are pretty consistent in their uh, interpretation and understanding of the genesis of the letter. As I mentioned to you before, <clears throat> Paul had sent Epaphras to establish this church in Colossae, which he had done. But in the time since the church had been established, some false teachers had come in or had sprung up from inside the congregation. And these false teachers were... were maybe sincerely, but we're teach, taking the church in a, in a direction which was, which was in, in Paul's view, away from God's intention for his church. And in fact, we know from the letter that Epaphras goes to Rome to visit Paul, who's in prison at that time in Rome. He talks to Paul. He provides a report. He says, there's good stuff going on in Colossae, but there's all this bad stuff going on. Paul, what do I, I don't know what to do. And, and the scholars believe that Paul writes this letter to set them, set them straight in Colossae, to say, look, I love you guys. I'm thankful for you. I'm encouraged by the, stuff, the good stuff that you've done, and I, and, and, and I pray for you. But, but I have to set you straight on some things. And <clears throat> the scholars have had to, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> effectively, reverse engineer the letter. Because Paul doesn't come out and say at various points, you guys have been doing this wrong, and this is what you should be doing. Instead, you can see from the topics he chooses and the way he frames things and the way he says, Christian life following Christ should be this, not this. The scholars generally are pretty clear that those were the problems that were going on in the church. And there are several threads that have been identified. I'm going to describe, just in general terms, what it sounds like was going on in the, in the church at Colossae that Paul wanted to address. It sounded like they were relying on human wisdom and tradition and knowledge, which came to them and was only sort of possessed by a small group of leaders who had a particular insight into these things. Now... <laughs> That's a dangerous thing for me as a pastor in a pulpit to be saying. Don't listen to some guy who stands up at the front and tells you that he knows things about what the Bible means. Um, but they were relying too much on human wisdom and tradition and knowledge. <clears throat> it's clear that the church at Colossae was being, becoming quite legalistic about the particular rituals that they followed or the particular ceremonies that carried out and the particular ways in which they felt that they were supposed to carry out those rituals and those ceremonies. Through the, <clears throat> the letter, it becomes clear that the church at Colossae had developed some really strict rules saying, because we're God's people, we have to stay away from these unclean things over here. There are things which we as, as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, shouldn't have anything to do with. We have to completely separate ourselves from those people and most of all, they were sidelining Christ himself in favor of their own interpretations and rules. 
I don't have a particular indictment for Seven Oaks Alliance Church. I think we're probably a, a pretty average church in that respect. But doesn't this sound familiar to you guys? Doesn't this sound like something that every church you've ever been in was somewhat prone to do? If there are <clears throat> two billion Christians and, uh, and, you know, hundreds of thousands of churches and thousands of denominations, and there's all this disagreement and dispute back and forth over you're supposed to worship this way, you're supposed to worship that way, you're supposed to believe this, you're supposed to believe that, you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to do this, you're allowed to hang out with these people, you aren't allowed to hang out with these people. Given how much difference of opinion there is, um, there's a real danger that we may be getting it wrong. And the other danger is that we're the folks in, in that uh, cartoon that I showed you where we go, oh, all the other two billion have got it wrong, but we've got it right. <clears throat> it's, <clears throat> it's, a, it's, a, it's a sobering thing uh, to, to have to think about, right? Paul writes this letter, and we're going to be unpacking this letter over the next couple of months. Paul writes this letter not to condemn the church, but to draw them back to the center of the gospel that Epaphras first took and preached to them. He wants to bring them back to the center of that gospel, which is relationship with Christ himself as the living Lord. Paul's purpose is to draw the church back from all of that. What are the rules? What are the regulations? What are the rituals? What are the ceremonies? What's, you know, who should we hang out? Who should we hang out with? Like, but, you know, our custom is this, or our practice is this, or we've always done it. That he, he, he's saying, pay attention to Christ. The center of our faith, our shared faith, our common faith... This was true when Paul wrote the letter, and it's true 2,000 years later. The center of our common faith, that which binds us together, is Christ himself. Now, we're going to do eight more messages in this series. You're going to hear different speakers. Jamie, of course, will be here uh, preaching um, uh, for several of the Sundays over the summer. Uh, Pastor Zach will be in the pulpit. Pastor Jack will be here. Next week, Mike Evanson will be, um, will be returning to the pulpit. Um, and uh, <clears throat> at the end of the summer, um, they'll have run out of interesting new people to put into the pulpit, and I'll be back for one, for one Sunday. Um, we're going to try to unpack how it is that Paul tries to pull the church at Colossae back from the wrong directions that they're going in. And I, I just want to say quickly, he does four things. This is a bit of a tickler summary advance trailer preview. It's summer movie season, so you're used to trailers. Paul, essentially, in this letter is going to do four things, and my colleagues will unpack in more detail what this looks like. But the first thing he does is that he starts with Christ and who Christ is and what Christ has done. Uh, next week, when Mike takes to the pulpit, he's going to be um, unpacking Colossians 15, 23, which is some of the most gorgeous theological poetry in all of Scripture. It's this magnificent theological passage that, um, that really digs deep into the enormity of who Christ is and what he's done. I'm done with that page. I'm profoundly, I'm profoundly jealous. Thank you, Peter. Um, I'm profoundly jealous of, of Mike getting, uh, getting to preach on that passage next week, but 
He's the rookie, so we kind of sent him a soft lob pitch. Um, Secondly, and this is really critically important, Paul reminds the people at at Colossae that they are spiritually connected to Christ. Christ isn't some abstract guy over here or somebody who, you know, lived and then died, you know, whatever it was, 30 or 40 years earlier or whatever. Paul reminds them that they have connection to Christ. In this relatively short letter, I mean, it's not an enormously long letter, but in this letter, um, if you comb through, there are 13 different times that he expressly references spiritual union with Christ. He talks about doing things in Christ. He talks about Christ being in them. He talks about them praying in Christ, about them doing good works in Christ, about them giving thanks in Christ. He reminds them over and over again that they, that Christ isn't just somebody that they know about. Christ is somebody who dwells inside of them someone who is present with them every hour of the day and night. As you're reading Colossians this summer, and I hope you'll be reading along with us as we go through the series, look for those phrases like in Christ or in the Spirit or in Him or with Him to see those reminders. The third thing Paul does, so he reminds his, us his readers, of who Christ is and what he's done. He reminds us, number two, that we have a spiritual union with Christ, thanks to Christ's work. The third thing is he, he reminds us, or rather he outlines what the fruit of that spiritual union should look like. He d- encourages uh, his readers by saying, saying <clears throat> when you have this union with Christ, it produces this and this and this. So he sets out what that looks like, and then finally he reminds them that they aren't a special interest club, that they aren't a hobby group, but that the reason Christ has pulled them together into a body is because they have a mission, and their mission is to make Christ known to the world. Those are the four things that he does, and as I say, we'll be unpacking that um, in more detail over the upcoming weeks. But we've got, and I think this will be helpful for you to keep framed with you, we have a title for the sermon, or the sermon series, and as we sometimes like to do, we've pulled a particular phrase out of the book of Colossians, and we're using it as the framing title for the series. And this phrase is contained in a passage that Jamie will be preaching on uh, two weeks from now. And in this passage, Paul um, references this astonishing thing that I just referred to, the fact that Christ lives within us. He calls this a great mystery, and of course it's a great mystery. I can, week after week, the pastors can week after week stand up and say, you have the the Spirit of Christ, Christ himself indwelling, living inside of you, um, but, but if you come up and see me afterwards and say, could you explain to me how that works? I'm not sure I can explain it much more than that. Um, because it is, as Paul says, a very great mystery. 
But Paul refers to it using this lovely phrase. He says, this is the great mystery that's been revealed in the world. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not only do we have hope to be alive and with Christ forever, but God's plan for the world to know about that hope, His plan for that isn't a social media campaign. His plan for that is to live inside of you and me and for us to bring that hope to everybody else in the world. The great mystery that Paul identifies and loves and all but sings about is the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, we in the church sometimes, I do this, I do this all the time, I make this mistake. I think that if I believe the right things, and I do the right things, that will draw me closer to God. Okay, everybody close your eyes, and then show of hands, have you ever, have you ever <clears throat> fallen into the heresy of thinking, if I just believe the right things and do the right things, that will draw me closer to God? Yeah. You can open your eyes now. <laughs> Except those of you who kept your eyes open. I could talk to you afterwards. <laughs> The opposite is true. Paul is telling us, the scriptures are telling us that the opposite of true. It is our closeness to God that allows us to believe the right things, to know the right things, to do the right things, to be the people that he calls us to be. Believing the right things and doing the right things doesn't draw us closer to God. Being close to God results in our doing the right things. It's only through our spiritual union with Christ that we can live lives that are worthy of Him. Paul says in this passage at Sumitra read that his desire is that uh, his readers would live lives worthy of Christ, but he says how you do that is through leaning into your Spiritual union with Christ. Okay. For application, I have homework for you. I know it's summertime and you're not supposed to get homework, but I have homework for you. My application for you, and it isn't just something cool you can try to remember to do for the next five days. Um, <clears throat> it's actually an application, a, a practice, a homework that I'd like you to consider taking on for the whole summer. I know it's a big ask, but here's what it is. It is a contemplative prayer practice that I want to encourage you to take on. And here's the basis of it. We sometimes make the same mistake that the Colossians made, right? And part of the reason why we think that if we can believe the right things and say the right things and do the right things and behave and live in a certain way, we can draw God closer to us is that we have this kind of weird idea that God is up there, like somewhere up there. When we pray, 
and again, I've done this, and I'm sure many of you have, I kind of have this sense that like I'm, I'm sending like an email to heaven. Like it's like I'm, I'm praying, but these pray, prayers have got a lot of ground to cover. They got like, they got to go all the way to wherever it is that heaven is. But that isn't what the Bible tells us uh, about things, right? Our belief, our faith, our knowledge and conviction, our experience is that we're not worshiping some ethereal God who's very far away. We are walking with and alongside and in and with the living Lord who is alive and present with us here in the moment. And this is a contemplative prayer practice that leans into that idea, that recognizes it. So here is how it works. I was thinking of bringing some chairs up here to make it more tangible. That'll just look clumsy. When you pray, and this is whether you're sitting in your chair or on your couch or at your kitchen table, or perhaps you're kneeling at your bedside, although my knees don't allow for that very much anymore. But when you're praying, imagine Jesus sitting conversational distance away from you, talking to you. If you're in this chair, imagine Jesus in this chair. If you're on this side of the kitchen table, imagine Jesus on the other side of the kitchen table. If you're in the back of the canoe, imagine Jesus up in the bow and immediately pull over to shore because he should be in the stern and you should be in the bow because he should be steering this thing. But, but imagine Christ in the room with you, directly in front of you. I'm not going to draw a picture for you. Some of you will have no choice now because you've been watching The Chosen for so long. You'll have no choice but to see the actor who plays God in The Chosen, right? Some of you who grew up with, um, with you know, classic imagery um, will, will see a six-foot-tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, you know, Nordic-looking fellow. That's fine, right? Uh, I, I try to imagine a probably about six-foot-tall, probably about 33-year-old man who looks vaguely Middle Eastern, right? And I'm being a little bit facetious about this. I don't want you to treat this facetiously. Imagine Christ sitting there in the chair, listening to you and talking to you. And then for your prayer, have the conversation with him. Now, this idea of imagining him uh, make some people uneasy, where they say, am I, not, am I not then sort of creating God in my image? Am I not, you know, imposing my ideas or views or cultural understandings on who God is or what he looks like? But I would suggest to you that the God who chose and has decided to come and dwell inside of you in union with you, the God who lives inside of you and inhabits you has the ability to inhabit your imagination. 
trust that God, if you come sincerely seeking his presence, seeking conversation with him, the God who's already there inside of you isn't going to let this go very badly astray. Your calling to him and speaking to him and desiring for him to hear you and desiring to hear his voice, it's entirely reasonable uh, to imagine that God is willing to use our imaginations to create that space in which to have the conversation with us. I learned to pray this way when I was in seminary, and this is the way I pray in my individual devotions every day of my life. And it produces the most extraordinary results. Not obviously in my outward life. Um, you all know me and are going, yeah, you seem pretty average to me. But, but in terms of my, my sense of connectivity, my sense of comfort and peace and knowledge of who Christ is and how he feels about me, this no single thing that I've done in my prayer life has changed my prayer life for the better. Um, quite like this very old practice, um, thousand-year-old practice of the church, which is, which is imagine Christ in the chair across from you. Pray as you always do. Say the things you always do. Um, give thanks for things you're thankful for. Um, express praise for what you know about God and who he is. Share the feelings that you're experiencing, your joys and your hopes and your fears and your worries and your sadnesses and your grief. Make your petitions. Ask for the things that you're going to ask for. Ask for stuff for you. Ask for stuff for your family. Ask for love and care and attention and support for other people that you know who need it. But instead of speaking them into this kind of spiritual email void, imagine yourself speaking them to a person, the God in the chair, directly across from you. And then allow space in the conversation to imagine him replying. One of the challenges that we have is, is that we think that when we're praying, we're supposed to be talking. Uh, there was a, a famous apocryphal quote from uh, Mother Teresa, who used to pray multiple hours a day, and a reporter once said to her, so like, if you're like praying for three hours, what do you say? And Mother Teresa famously said, say? I don't say anything. I listen. Listen, but listen for that loving Christ in the chair across from you to speak to you. And he will faithfully speak to you. The other thing to keep in mind is, this is a personal, intimate, it's the most intimate one-on-one -on -one conversation with Christ and you. So don't ask him, what does the Bible say about this topic? Don't say, what is the correct theology on this issue? Don't say, could you tell me what the rules are on this topic? That's what the Pharisees used to say when they came to see Jesus. What you should be doing is asking him what he has to say 
to you. Not what he has to say to the whole world, but asking God what he has to say to you. Tell him that you're listening and then listen. And fairly obviously, if in the course of this prayer and deep prayer encounter with the Christ who is your Lord, he tells you to do something, I'm required as your pastor to say, do it. This is an all-summer assignment. I guarantee you, Jesus is happy to meet you wherever it is that you pray. He is happy to meet you in a deck chair. He's happy to meet you in a canoe. He's happy to meet you at the beach. He's happy to sit across a campfire from you. He's happy to sit in the car next to you as you're driving along on the road. God created us. We go all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to the beginning of this story. God created us for relationship with Him. The reason human beings were created was so that we would hang out, as my friend Zach says, with God. So you don't have to worry that, you know, God isn't going to be available uh, to come or he's not going to like the venue that you've picked. He will come. And I will make a bold prayer. If you attempt this spiritual discipline, if you attempt praying this way, and you diligently try to do it all through the summer, I'm going to say that there's a very, very real possibility that it will become your favorite way to pray. If you do this, not just this prayer practice, but if you seek Christ, if you lean in, as Paul says, to that spiritual union with Him, if you seek Christ, your life will bear the fruit that it's supposed to. If you do this, you can be sure that you're getting it right. And the way you can be sure that you're getting it right is that you can ask God what it is He wants you to do and receive and do what He tells you. If you do this, you will be empowered to live, as Paul prayed for the folks at Colossae and as he prayed for us. If you do this, you will be empowered to live a life that's worthy of the Lord.